School CEO Conversations is an Aptogee Media production. We like to have insightful conversations with education's most inspiring and thoughtful leaders. In this episode, Neuroscience and Education, we talk with Jenna Rhodes from Crisp County Schools in Georgia about her collaboration with the neuroscience-based teaching program, NeuroTeach Global. Here is today's host, Brittany. Good morning. So this morning we have Jenna Rhodes on our podcast. Jenna is from Crisp County Schools in Georgia, and she is here to talk about all things neuroscience and education. Jenna, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So just to get us started, because I know that you have a very interesting path to your current position, um, how did you first become interested in neuroscience and its application in the classroom? Well, I actually, um, I do not have a bachelor's in education. I have a bachelor's in biology um, from the great University of Georgia. Um, go dogs! Have to get that plug in. Um, and I... I married a farmer. We moved to Florida. And while I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I began teaching at an alternative school in Florida. And it it really blew me away because the kids were just stuck on a computer program, you know, going through lessons and nobody was really helping them, nobody doing much. And so I started like creating incentives and, and really working with them and putting them in groups and let's get through this together. And it blew my mind that nobody thought to do that. And so I immediately, you know, got interested in becoming a teacher because I could see the difference that I was making in a classroom. And not that I was making this huge difference, but I was able to see the success of students. And, and I really enjoyed that. So we moved back to Georgia from Florida and I applied for a teaching position at our local high school and went through what they call the TAP program here. It's teacher alternative preparation. While I was in the classroom, you know, I had no idea how to write a lesson plan. I had no, no idea how to do anything really as far as teaching, but I taught science. So I had content knowledge and I knew how to make it fun. And I knew in order to make learning happen, you have to have fun. You have to make it something kids want to do and they're interested in. And I realized a lot of people just put up a PowerPoint and click through the slides and kids took notes. And then you gave them a test on Friday. If you were mad at them, you gave them a pop quiz and they <laughs> failed and then you fussed. And it really just kind of was disheartening. And as a biology, you know, major as a biologist, technically, I knew how the brain worked and it blew my mind that that teachers didn't, but it was not teachers' faults. They had never really, I mean, they went through some developmental courses, they said, but it was not much at all. And so I really got interested in kind of trying to get them interested in neuroscience or, you know, how the brain learns. And I really just delved into how much are they taught in college. And that was when I kind of got lost in it because it, it was mind-blowing. Like, you're a teacher, but you don't know how the brain learns. That's kind of, it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So I spent eight years as a special education teacher and I didn't learn much about brain science until I started training for a, a TBI class. And that's where I was like, oh, you know, traumatic brain injuries impact different parts of the brain differently. And so you have to know how the brain works all together. And I started putting a lot of connections together that I hadn't previously in my classroom. And that's, 
you know, saying something as a special education teacher, I had students who needed a delayed response time. And I didn't realize until that TBI course that that meant waiting 20 seconds, not just like giving it a beat, but actually giving their brain time to process. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Um, I think that one of the biggest things for me was I, I teach in a high poverty area and, you know, nobody ever talked to me about constructivism and, you know, how I have so many different experiences, which gives me background knowledge. And a lot of children living in poverty, especially extreme poverty, they don't get those experiences. So they don't have the background knowledge to grasp what you're discussing. And then we get frustrated, but it's because many teachers that I teach with, I'll say from my experience, teachers are from middle class backgrounds per se. And so they have a lot of experiences that the kids we teach don't have. And so there's a huge disconnect between why they can't get it, why they can't understand, why they're not getting into it. And if we had, you know, take stepped back and understood, oh, it may be because if there's no background knowledge there, if there's no connection in the brain, there's nothing wired there, then we're basically talking to ourselves because it's not that they don't want to understand it. There's nothing there for them to to relate it to. Yeah. If, if that makes sense. If an astronaut came in talking to me about how to fly a rocket, he can be the best person in the world and I'm lost because I've never been inside of a rocket. I don't understand what he's talking about. It has nothing to do with my innate intelligence. I have no experience to relate this to. Yeah, I I I'm excited to talk about this. I know in our first call, you mentioned that like education speak is to students and families living in poverty as like, you know, advanced medical jargon is to most of us. Like if you've ever gotten lost trying to read a diagnosis report or a medical report, then you probably know how students and parents feel or sorry, students and families feel when talking to teachers and other educators. Yes. And and (laughs) even affluent families because you know here in Georgia we have GMAS we have EOC everything we do is GMAS is Georgia Milestones Assessments well EOC is end of course test and you throw that around like it's common language because it is for us but we forget it's not common for people not in our arena and I think that's what happens um, when you teach children in poverty what you're used to seeing and what you're used to teaching is common for you. So you oftentimes forget that maybe the things you're discussing or trying to relate it to is not common for a lot of the students in your classroom. Absolutely. And this is a very like surface level example, but I remember working with one of my students once and he had a geometry question about a ski lift um, and they didn't have a drawing. And this is a kid from D.C. He's never seen a ski lift. He has no concept of it. And so he's like, I thought skis were just like lines. Yeah. And, I was like, <laughs> oh, and I, you know, and he had shut down reading the problem because he couldn't conceptualize it. He couldn't understand it. And so while he could do the math and understand the concepts, it, the background knowledge made him feel like the problem was inaccessible. And that's one of the many examples you'll hear. And, and I'll, I'll say this, um, state testing, I have a major issue because, you know, in education, they preach differentiation, but everybody mm-hmm. takes, you know, the same exam and language is different. And I, I will never forget, um, one of my students came in after one of their tests and 
they were writing a word on the board because we always discussed how if you saw one word that you had no idea what it was, there was a good chance that word had nothing to do with the problem. Because if you, if you were in my science class and it was a science test, you had probably seen, you know, every word science related. And, and I thought, what in the world? And so when he got done, I said, Chateau? He said, yeah, I don't know what that is. And he did, I mean, and I thought that was on a test, the word chateau. I mean, I was like 30 years old at the time and I don't think I'd (laughs) ever used that word. And so imagine a a high school child that, that threw them off. And so I agree totally, you know, we, we use vocabulary words that they have, they, they can't decipher it. That's not something they use. And then their brain just I mean, it can't process the rest of it because it sends them into a stage of high stress, trying to figure out what this word means. So before we talk too much about poverty, I know that there was one book in particular that really sort of launched your current project and your current work and a couple of professionals who wrote that book. And could you tell our listeners that story? Uh, Yes, I have to say, I have to give credit to to two books. Um, John Medina brain rules it's 12 rules you know every person needs to know, every educator especially um that right there got me started years ago um in my journey for getting neuroscience to other people and one of the first things it says is if you know anything about the brain and how it works then you would know that everything we're doing in the classroom is wrong <laughs> and, and it was like what but it's because he's like you know your brain needs a break you need to go outside you need to play you need to do this and and currently we were like saying we don't have time for recess you know that was ridiculous um so he is really where i got to digging into my research and then i found a book called neuroteach by glenn whitman and ian kelleher and i just was obsessed with the book and i happened to find glenn on twitter and i reached out to him and i was like look I want you to come to my school system. I want you to work with my teachers, bring this because I'm scared they won't listen to me. Um, I need a big name. And I said, we're from, you know, one of, we have the highest childhood poverty in the state. We, I really want you to come. And I didn't think I would hear anything. And like two minutes later, he's like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. And it was one of those like fangirl moments that I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> and he is so humble and down to earth. He was like, I'm really not a big deal. I'm like, oh, but you are a big deal. <laughs> and so we um, linked up the three of us and started kind of a partnership. And I, and I feel bad because of all this with COVID. I haven't been able to dedicate as much as I would like to this year. Um, But we started forming a partnership and we were working on, actually, we got some money from our local technical school to send a group of teachers up to the Center of Transformational Teaching and Learning to do a summer institute. And we were doing that the summer COVID, like shut everything down. Mm -hmm. So we were so excited and then our hearts got crushed. But because of that, they turned the NeuroTeach, like the Summer Institute, into not the full thing, but NeuroTeach Global, which is an online professional development available across the globe um, that really trains teachers in best practices based in what we I call it mind-brain education. So it's not a silver bullet. It's not a prescription. It's just these are true research-based instructional practices that you can use that will get results. 
So you described your, you know, your work with Glenn Whitman and in Kelleher as a partnership. So I know that their research takes place in mostly affluent or middle class communities, correct? Yes. That's the one thing they're like, you know, we need we need to see how this works with, with every school. Um, so how did your work with students in poverty, as you mentioned, your district is, you know, in one of the most impoverished counties in Georgia. How did your work with poverty like help, you know, help them build or better understand like how their work was more broadly applicable or what they needed to change and speaking to all teachers of all students? Um, I, and I don't know that we are that I don't know that we have gotten that far yet for me to mm-hmm. to to speak to that. I would have to ask them. Um, mm-hmm. I think our teachers had great questions like they they wanted to know, OK, this sounds great, but we have students that can't read in middle school. So how do we how do we apply this to that situation that and that was a lot of the questions that our our teachers had these strategies are fantastic but what about how do we use it for kids that are so far behind and i don't think brain science can answer that i think Mm -hmm. that is one of those things that we have to stop in education and say okay we can't have this expectation just because they're a certain age We've got to get them where they need to be based on where they are. And we can use the the neuroteach principles, the retrieval practice to get them there. But we can't expect to catch a child up that's five years behind in one year. Yeah. And, you know, as far as regarding that whole child teaching, like they may be struggling in reading, but that is only one tiny facet of their, you know, their overall brain development. And so there's Um, Something that I found like teaching special education is that I grew most as a teacher when I was able to be asset based. And so even when I had students who may be non-readers and non-verbal and, you know, have other deficits that seemed really hard to approach, you know, I'd be like, well, he is really good at running the coffee shop that we have on Fridays. Like he has skills. He has growth. It's just maybe doesn't look like the standardized test wanted to. That is the biggest thing, um, one of the biggest issues that I have in education. That test doesn't define our students' mm-hmm. knowledge. Um, I had a, a lot of students when I taught that that could not read to the level of the test, but if I verbally would ask them a question, their answers were, it, it blew me out of the water. And so I would tell them, you know, this test does not mean you don't know anything, but I mean, I didn't know how to teach reading. I, I, I still don't know how to teach reading. That's one of the most, you know, that's the most difficult skill in the world, I think, to teach. So I just really think that as educators, understanding mind, brain, and education, understanding how the brain works, how, you know, students that are in, in stressful situations, they are not able to learn and retain. Mm-hmm. And And people, I don't mean for that to sound ugly. That is that is legitimate. You know, we call the amygdala the fork in the road. So when you hear something, it gets there and it's either going to your prefrontal cortex or what we call the lower brain. So if you're in stress, it's going to the lower brain, which is your fight, flight, or freeze. 
last time we talked, you talked about the brain model, the hand brain model that you use with your students. And I imagine is also useful for families too. I, you know, I hate that I can't, I don't know, somehow model this with the screen on a podcast, but can you explain like what that is and how that has impacted um, students in your classrooms? Oh, yes. Um, the hand model. And I've, I'll need to get you the name of the guy that did this because I'm not doing him justice. I need to give him full credit. Um, basically, the hand model you take in like the lower part of your wrist is your hindbrain. I'm giving you a very basic overview. Your thumb is your amygdala. And so you fold your thumb in to your palm and then you close your four fingers over your thumb and your four fingers over your thumb are your prefrontal cortex. Your prefrontal cortex is what we call like your thinking brain. And that is where all of your logic, your reasoning, goal setting, all that is there. Your amygdala is your emotional control. So I tell my students like don't flip your lid, which means if your prefrontal cortex flies open, your amygdala is running loose and you're having a tantrum. You're losing control. You're acting out. So, you know, kids need visual cues, even adults. Um, so I would, I would simply just walk by and say, close your lid. Don't flip your lid. And I would tuck my thumb and roll, slowly roll my fingers over that thumb. And then I would pop it open, like close it. You know, you're starting to lose. And the students would immediately do it with their hands, you know, and then eventually you would see them start to do it at their desk. And that to me as a teacher was huge because then I was signaled in to who was feeling stressful um, in the words of the students feeling some type of way, you know, they were having a hard time. And so I knew then don't mess with them right now, like let them work this out. I, I would not you know, I didn't want to touch them. I didn't want to call on them. I would let them calm down. And then eventually I would ease over there and say, hey, you know, are you okay? And usually they would say, you know, I just had a bad morning. But they, that was a reminder to them. Like they could solely focus on their hand moving. They probably didn't hear a thing I said, but they controlled themselves. They were able to use that hand motion. It was just a simple reminder. Hey, you're about to lose control. I need you to try your hardest to get it, get it back together. I imagine, too, that was in a very important way for them to understand how their brain works. So I worked with 10th graders for most of my career, and sometimes 10th graders even don't know why they're upset. And I mean, this happens with adults, too. Um, but if they better understand how their brain works, and it's like, okay, I'm feeling emotional right now. I'm probably not thinking logically. Like, let right. me give it a break. And that's that's a hard lesson for adults, but what a great little device to teach it. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, um, like with social media, I really, and if somebody listens to this and, and makes it, I might come after you. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I want to write a program for social media that uses like artificial intelligence or something to read into the emotion behind the post and then mm -hmm. say, we will not post this for 15 minutes. Like come back in oh, 15 minutes <laughs> and see if you still want to post it. Because I think that would stop so many issues, like especially with kids, you know, because you fire it off because you've flipped your lid and then you don't mean it. But once it's out there, you know, you can't take it back. And that's what I tell my students. And, and a lot of people don't understand too, that starting in the early adolescent years, a student, a child's brain is seeking novelty and it's seeking approval. 
And so that's why social media is really dangerous because they're doing, they're living on the edge. Like they're seeking a thrill that that's ingrained into them to seek this. And so they're wanting the attention. They're wanting all this and they don't really know why, like that's just a part of, of the growing process. So if we don't put, um, give them a little bit of understanding of that, like, Oh, that's why I get a thrill from this. It's, it's a part of me developing. It's a part of me growing up. Then I do think they have a better understanding of why they make the decisions they make. And two, I think they also feel more normal sometimes because they're like, Oh, if I feel like this and it's a part of growing and development in my brain, then I bet other people feel like this too, or experience this too. What a powerful tool for children, but also for adults. Um, You know, so I'm a parent of a two-year-old and I often remind myself that tantrums are developmentally appropriate Mm -hmm. um, because they can be tiring and stressful. But that is a sign that my daughter's brain is developing appropriately, um, that she's, you know, pushing against these boundaries and feeling these feelings. So how has your work impacted how teachers view the brain and also how families and parents view the brain? The teachers that signed up to do the first phase of NeuroTeach, it was mind blowing. I mean, they were like, I had no, I had no idea that, you know, when a child was under stress, they, they couldn't learn. And, you know, optimal development when you can't store, but so much in your short term memory. And if you're coming in stressed, nothing is getting stored. So every day when they leave, And the next day they come back. Okay, if you're a teacher, I'm sure most people listening to this have been in the classroom, you'll understand. The next day they walk in and they're like, what are we doing today? And every teacher is like, continuing what we did yesterday. And then they're like, we don't know what we did. And we get so upset. We're like, how do you not know? Like, it's on the board. We've been doing this for a week. But (laughs) as we were going through that, the teachers were like, holy cow, this makes so much sense. They, it was not stored. It never left short-term memory and got plugged into long-term memory. And now I know why. Now I know, like, if you've ever looked at the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, like you have to hear it so many times and you have to space it. So the teachers really started looking at, all right, I've got to make this exciting. I've got to somehow link it to what they know, but I can't overload them. I don't want to say a formula because there's no formula, but there is strategic ways that you can make what you're doing stick. And so the kids can come back the next day and they're like, oh, yeah, we talked about this yesterday. In our first call, you mentioned that neuroplasticity is a very, you know, foundation of your work with teachers and with students. Can you explain that a little bit and how that impacts education? Oh, yes. So neuroplasticity, it's the ability for you to basically continue um, learning. Your brain can change and generate new neurons. You know, there's so many neuromyths out there that, you know, you can't learn after 14, that you have to teach them before they get to middle school or after middle school, they quit learning. You know, there are so many neuromyths out there from marketing companies. And don't get me started on that. Um, (laughs) And the kids, the kids hear that and the teachers hear that and they buy into it. And so it's a mindset that, well, I haven't learned it by now, so I'm never, I'm never going to learn it. Um, so the one thing about neuroplasticity is, yes, if you're still alive, we can rewire your brain. We can generate, it's called neuroregeneration. We can generate new neurons with new knowledge. We can also rewire it. 
if you do something over and over again enough times, it becomes automatic and that can happen for the rest of your life. And, and that is something that our teachers were like, oh yeah, we, I have always kind of thought that if they didn't learn it at a certain age, it, it was harder. And I said, look, I'm not saying it's not harder, but it's not impossible. So let's be careful with how we take one little word and make it, you know, something that it it's not. Um, we're, we're really bad about that, you know, as everybody. But one thing we have to realize too, kids that live in high poverty or situations where there's trauma, they don't hold on or don't learn things where their brain doesn't predict survival or that it's going to have a probable outcome. And so a lot of times kids that are living in poverty and doing these things, some of the things that we're teaching them in school, their brains are not realizing that this is something that they could be successful with because they're just trying to survive. And that is something that we have to understand as teachers and we have to rewire, you know, this thought process. And that's, that's something hard, but it is absolutely achievable. One thing that I've noticed working with students um, in poverty is that they have a deep sense of fear of failure. And yeah. I feel like that fear of failure, you know, I've read and researched um, and more and more learned now that fear of failure is because in their real lives, failure is extremely catastrophic. And so while you can tell them like, hey, it's just a low grade on a quiz, they don't have a sense of like, oh, failure doesn't have to be terrible because in my real life outside of school, failure really is terrible. You know, if we don't pay our bill, we don't have electricity. And I actually just read a new article. I think Dr. Daniel Ansari was part of it um, that said, you know, kids up until like late adolescence do not process negative feedback. They shut down completely. So when we say, you did this wrong, this was bad, they shut down. They respond to positive feedback. And that blew um, my teacher's minds because they were like, no, and they were like, this isn't real. You know, this isn't true. And I said, okay, I want you to try it. And, and my husband was one that was like, because, you know, my son plays baseball. And when he does something wrong, he's like, you can't do that. You do this every time. You know, it's a, I hate to say, a tongue lashing. And you could just see my child, like he checks out. And so when I read this, I was like, whoa. And we happened to be eating um, Mexican that night. And he was cutting up a quesadilla. And I said, you did such a good job cutting that up. And the rest of the night, he's like, hey, mom, did you see it? I cut it up again? Did I do good that time? <laughs> like all he wanted to do the rest of the night was show me how good he, and I was like, that right there is what this research, and that is such a superficial, you know, example. And that is I'm way over generalizing and simplifying that research, but kids don't respond to that negative feedback until a certain age when their brain can handle it. They shut down. So positive feedback and the way we say things to children really impacts their energy level that they're going to put forth in, in the classroom. So how could neuroscience help parents better understand their children? And how can schools make this more accessible for the parents? Okay, um, that's kind of, it's kind of a double-edged sword because I feel like I analyze my children all the time now. But really, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm like, oh, this is what's happening here. Um, I really do think that it could help parents of all of all levels to understand the emotional outburst. You know, the emotional outburst was huge to me. And to understand that at certain, um, 
Like at certain parts of life, your child is experiencing different things in their brain. So like I have a 10 year old right now and he and I are just, oh, we are butting heads. But it's because he's at that part of life where hormones, you know, things are going crazy. His brain is undergoing like a a change process and he doesn't understand how to deal with it. And so my job is to kind of say, okay, I understand that you're feeling different. Let's talk about, you know, these emotions. But also parents, to me, the biggest thing is to understand like experiences. Your brain feeds off of experiences. So try to give your kids an experience. Try to talk to them about what they see. Encourage them to be curious. Ask questions. If you're if you ask your kids questions all the time instead of giving them the answer to their question, they're going to be much more successful. You know, like when my kids ask, you know, why do we have stars? I don't know. Why do we have stars? Why don't you go figure it out? And I know that sounds crazy, but you're teaching them a, a great skill to go and research and to figure it out on their own because now that knowledge is theirs. It's not mine. It's not my knowledge. It's, it's their knowledge. Um, so that is one thing I tell parents all the time. I actually started like a little YouTube thing called Roads to Curiosity where we did experiments and we I think we ended up doing four but it was during COVID and I would say you know how can you figure this out how did this happen just ask questions and that is one huge thing that we can get our parents to work on with kids is getting them to ask questions two understanding that learning is not a grade stop focusing so much on a grade and I see that a lot that our parents get lost they value a grade more than the learning And it's a process, not a product. Um, And I know that may not have anything to do with neuroscience, but it it does because you're teaching your kids to be stressed about a grade. Well, when your brain is stressed, you're not going to make good decisions because your your amygdala is not sending that to your prefrontal cortex, your fight, flight, or freeze. But when you do things like that, you sometimes make bad decisions. And when you make bad decisions, bad things happen. So if we would really just encourage... I just want you to learn it. I just want you to really have a grasp of it, understand it, instead of you better have a good grade. That, I think, is is extremely beneficial um, for parents. And, and I'm, I'm preaching to myself here, too, because <laughs> we all want our kids to be successful. And that is the standard for success that we have always had um, in education. So I think that is something that we can really promote is the process of learning not necessarily the product and also the product doesn't have to be a test Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't have to be a test so we i think that is another thing but one one thing i would love to explain to parents is that kids prefrontal cortex is not developed it's not developed yet so they're gonna make terrible decisions i'm sorry (laughs) mom and dad i'm sorry teacher it's gonna happen and that's how we learn Yeah, it doesn't develop fully till they're like 23, right? Yes. Or something like that. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. 21 to 23. They say, you know, that's really. (laughs) And then even then I question it because honestly, how do we know? You know, how does your brain know you're 23? You know, but it's it's on that scale. You know, some are some happens before others. Um, But I would just tell parents, you have to understand kind of what your child is going through. Understand they're going to make mistakes. So maybe set them up so that the mistakes they make can't be as as bad as possible. Um, but be honest with yourself and, and with your child. And I think that is one thing I would love. I would love to have like parent 
be able to go speak to parents and explain to them what's happening, how learning takes place. Um, John Medina, he's one of my favorite people because he says you learn with your emotion. And that is so true. I mean, if you're angry, you cannot learn. Um, that's a, you know, I, don't, I hate saying scientific fact because it's probably not a fact, but it's just a theory at this point. Um, you can't learn if you're stressed out, if you're not happy. So I think the biggest thing I would tell people is learning is emotional. So if you can tie something you're teaching to a story or to anything that can pull at a child's emotions, guess what? They are going to remember. And John Medina, he's won like teacher professor of the year for years. But what he does, he says, I have a formula. I will teach for 15 minutes. And then at 15 minutes, I weave in a story, either a personal story or some kind of story that is linked to what I'm teaching, but it's emotional. And then I go right back and it resets the kids to keep them from getting bored and losing, you know, I'm not losing them anymore. And, and I find that to be so true because everything I taught my kids that was tied to some type of emotional story to this day, if I see them, they will, they remember that, like, that's what they remember. So you know, tell parents, try to relate what they're doing to something that you know they've experienced or make it emotional and not like boohooing emotional, but make it generate <laughs> yeah. some type of emotion. And then I think their kids will be much more successful. Yeah. I, that reminds me, I used to teach characterization using my two dogs <laughs> and my students they still remember my dogs. Like I, I'll run into them out and about and they're like, you have your one dog that's like this and one dog that's like this. And and that's how they are characterized. And it's, you know, it's so funny because you're so right. Like, can you talk a little bit about the NeuroTeach program? Because I know you said that they're working on making that available to more teachers in more districts. And so I thought it might be yes. something that superintendents could be interested in for their own teachers. NeuroTeach Global is actually an online professional development program. It is super quick. Like the lessons are like five minutes and there's four learning tracks. So you can pick like, do you want to do curriculum? Do you want to do learning environment? Do you want, you know, retrieval practice? And you get to select which track you start with. And before you do it, you take what they call a neuroscience or neuroteach diagnostic. That's available. It's public. And they have grants available right now if the superintendent will contact them at the CTTL, um, Glenn Whitman, NeuroTeach Global. And you go through, like, I just set up a timeline for my group of teachers. You know, this week we're going to have this done and then we're going to meet and discuss. Um, there are little quizzes that you take as you go along. There are activities that you do turn in, but they're not, they're not ridiculously long, but they're <laughs> thoughtful. And that helped my teachers a lot because in one of the lessons we discussed homework and is the homework you're giving thoughtful homework. If a kid can do it in five minutes without even thinking, is it thoughtful? The one we did, we learned about spacing, interleaving, really retrieval practice processes. And our teachers had to rewrite um, a unit or a lesson that they teach putting in some spacing practice and interleaving. And our teachers loved that because they, especially our math teachers, because they had taught everything in blocked practice. And they were like, oh my gosh, this, this, you know, then at the end of the year, I won't have to, you know, go back over everything because if we follow this and we use the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, they're going to hit it constantly. 
and they're going to understand it. So our teachers were great. It's short. The course, it, I mean, you can get it done in six weeks. You can get, you can take nine weeks. But if I was a superintendent, I highly recommend the superintendent and admin do it first. That is something, or, or do it together. Because I know that leaders are so busy. But as someone that's between teachers and, and leaders, I can say that is the one thing that means the most. When the leaders are right there in the learning with you and you can use the same vocabulary and have the same aha moments. I imagine too that it teaches them something about how adults learn. Um, something we've talked about on the podcast before is how adult learning theory is almost absent from any professional development. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, something that I struggled with as a teacher, which was taking attendance. And it's not because I didn't know that I needed to take attendance. I knew and I understood why it was important. It was that the beginning of class was the most stressful part for me. And that's when we had to have it in by. And, and so, you know, I'd have kids come in, turning in homework, doing their bell ringer, like so much going on. And so, you know, looking back, I'm like, oh, it's because I was stressed that I continually forgot that important step. That's right. Yeah. And um, we actually discussed this in one of our first meetings with the teachers that did NeuroTeach. Um, adult learning is called andragogy. And adults, they have to have a reason for why they're learning something. Like you don't get to just come in now and be like, you're learning, you're doing this professional development because I said so. Okay, well, I didn't want to do it. So guess how much time and effort I'm putting into it? You know, and I think that's sometimes we, we waste a lot of money in education requiring people to do professional development that they simply are not interested in. Um, so this was something that I offered and I had 40 spots. I had like 56 teachers sign up and a lot of them dropped because... We were in the middle of COVID. They were having to do, you know, this, that, or the other. I think I had 28 completed, which I was very thankful for. But when we talked about andragogy, they were like, yeah. I mean, I want you to talk to me like I'm an adult, one. I want you to show me the purpose. Like, why am I learning this? And there has to be an immediate gotcha. Aha, this is going to help me. And so, yes, I think this really opened my eyes to how I approach professional development for my teachers. And also, it was really cool for me to hear what they took out of each lesson because what they took and what I took was totally different because I have a little bit more background knowledge. So I sometimes thought about it too scientifically and they oftentimes thought about it more pedagogical, more classroom-based. And so to me, that was really, really, it was really cool. Okay, so I have two more questions for you. The first is, I know you're working on your doctorate right now, and you're yeah. doing some research with NeuroTeach. Can you talk a little bit about your research? Yes, I am actually trying to see if partaking in Neuroscience Global or NeuroTeach Global will impact teacher self-efficacy. So with the NeuroTeach diagnostic initially that we took, um, <laughs> it was really funny, our teachers said they knew a lot more about the brain than what they actually, they were really overconfident. <laughs> they were I'm like, yeah, we know <laughs> this. We know this. We know this because everybody believes in learning styles. Well, that's mm. really a neuro myth. And <laughs> like, there's a lot of stuff that they were like, oh yeah, we understand how this works. And then when we got into it, they answered the questions wrong. And so they were all like, 
oh. But what I'm trying to figure out, happy teachers make good teachers. And if you believe in yourself and you believe that you can make a difference in how a student learns, then you're going to work harder probably at your job. You're going to feel better about yourself. And so I'm trying to discover if partaking in MBE research, specifically NeuroTeach Global, will increase teacher self-efficacy. And so far, very, very preliminary results, we are seeing a direct correlation. I mean, in in this and in an increase in teacher self-efficacy. And to me, it wasn't even the strategies they learned as much as the fact that they were able to give themselves and the students more grace than they ever had. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this School CEO Conversation. You can follow Jenna on Twitter at Rhodes underscore JJ and learn more about the NeuroTeach and NeuroTeach Global in the show notes. Subscribe to School CEO at schoolceo.com for more advice, stories, and strategies for leading your schools. School CEO is brought to you by Aptogee.